Hello, my name is Ruvimbo and I'm your host for the special two-part series of Heart House Stories, featuring interviews with two UFT law students about their involvement in the International Human Rights Program and the collection of interviews for the book And I Live On, which features narratives of resilience and empowerment of survivors from the Rwandan genocide. A few weeks ago, my fellow Heart House podcaster Tony Luang and I interviewed second-year law students, Mehak in India, about their experiences working on this project, what motivated them to pursue a career in law, and their reflections on some of life's bigger questions. While the focus of these conversations is on resilience, you should know that we will be discussing survivors of sexual violence, so be sure to take care of yourself in whatever way is best. And now, if you'll join me in listening to our conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited just about this entire project in general and just... Hearing your story from the, you know, kind of organizing end of it and what you took out of it. And I know we discussed a little bit about it in the previous, but we tried to hold off so we could have all the content (laughs) (laughs) just for the podcast. But um, yes, I guess we'll just get into it. Um, You know, you can start by just telling us your name, um, how you were involved in the project and, you know, what drove you to be involved and um, the, the background, what the project is actually about. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Mehak Kuatra. And if you struggle with that, it's what the heck, Mehak. <laughs> That's how everyone knows it at law school. That's how I assume everyone will know it for the rest of my life. Um, I'm in my second year of law school and I got involved with the International Human Rights Program Clinic. As a second year law school student, uh, we get credit to do clinic work. And I got into law school because of human rights law, of, because of my commitment to human rights. And I spent my summer last year working with the Human Rights Watch as an intern. So I got involved in the clinic through a series of emails that the director and I exchanged over the course of the summer where I said, am I good for this? Is this a good fit? You know, I'd really like to do this human rights work because the reason that that's a really important sort of conversation to have is because the clinic does a lot of hands-on work. So you're actually not just theoretically studying about human rights law, you're actually working with clients, you're working with lawyers, you're in some cases producing affidavits, or you're preparing litigation um, strategies, or you're doing research for real causes and clients with stakes involved. So there's a level of sophistication that the clinic demands, and rightly so, of their students. And I was concerned just as a, as a not even a 2L student, whether I'd be a good fit. But working at the Human Rights Watch, I think, really set me up. And then my background actually has always been in sexual violence research, and that's sort of been my focus for human rights. When I was at the Human Rights Watch, I was doing women's rights work as well. So through the conversation, Sam, I brought up the fact that, you know, this year we'll be working on the Rwandan genocide as a project in time for the 25th anniversary. And he asked me (laughs) if I would be interested, and I was, and I still am, of course. So that's how I got involved. And as a clinic student, this one was this this project was different from the other projects. Here we don't really have clients. We don't have a, a case that's going to go to court. There's no constitutional parameter for it. This is this this project was about discovering and rediscovering survivorship. It, it was about doing background research and really applying the law to figure out what justice could really look like in the context of Well, in the context of 25 years passing after a genocide, you know, it's not like the genocide happened yesterday. It's not like these cases are necessarily being prosecuted, but there are lived consequences for something that is relatively recent. So the project is about a book. It's it's about developing a sequel to 
of fir the first book, The Men Who Killed Me, which came out in 2008. That book interviewed 17 survivors of the Rwandan genocide. And it's called The Men Who Killed Me because these are survivors who experience sexual violence. And while they are alive, they have effectively been eradicated in many ways, emotionally, politically, individually. Um, and so this 2019 project is about the sequel. It's about re-interviewing those same survivors now 10 years after the original interview to see whether they have found within themselves and from their community the strength to be empowered, how they resile, what, what resilience looks like for them. And the project involved a great deal of preparing for those interviews, being able to prepare those questions, what kinds of questions are going to gather the most needy responses from survivors who don't really think about their lives in these interviews. They're not living, they're not breathing, they're not existing, they're not creating families. They're just doing what they think is best. So how do you focus their survivorship? How do you focus their experiences into a narrative of empowerment? Because that's effectively what's happening. They're being empowered. So that was, that was the real task for all of September was just sort of keeping in touch with their lives through sponsorship reports from the, the Solace Ministries, the organization that helps to support the survivors on the ground in Rwanda. So my goal, along with my, my partner, India, who you'll speak with later, our goal was to keep up, keep in touch with these, these reports and develop insightful questions and then prepare for the trip. That was September. And then the trip happened in November, but the process was quite an intensive one. It was, you know, understanding their stories of sexual violence, getting to know these survivors very uh, deeply and having to deal with the emotional consequences of those narratives on your own self. And then after the trip was over, the, the focus was about distilling that information, what taking all this data that we had gathered and putting it into testimonials. It was about transcribing the, the audio that we had collected, but also figuring out exactly how to translate uh, into digestible pop culture testimonials being able to take the words of the survivors, which have already been translated by someone else. So technically it's already been once removed, now twice removed, now that we've edited down to a testimonial that we're attributing to them. So that was quite an intensive process. Um, a lot of research went into preparing the introductory and, and the conclusory chapters of the book as well, to sort of introduce readers to the concept of genocide, sexual violence as a tool for genocide. And, um, what that looked like actually in Rwanda in 1994. And then the conclusory chapters are about the reflections. So that's been the project and it's been quite intense and it's been a process I'll never forget. So I still remember the first task that we were assigned, we were asked to read the first book, The Men Who Killed Me. We were in Samer's office and he handed us all a gift. He said, well, this is for everyone, the project. Here's an English version because there's a Dutch version as well. Here's an English version of The Men Who Killed Me. Read it. Read each of the testimonials and then prepare summaries of these testimonials to refresh all the researchers on what happened. But don't focus too much on the sexual violence. So that part was tough because the testimonials, they're not extraordinarily graphic, but they are. And... I recall reading the, this, the, the 17 testimonials and I thought I could do this, you know, 
on the subway. I thought I could do this like a regular reading. And then I was reading the first or second one, and I forget now, I think it might have been um, Marie, but I was reading one of the survivors' testimonials, and I was in the TTC, and a line of it, a line which is quite graphic, so I'm not going to repeat, was what happened to her, uh, the act of sexual violence, she was describing it. I, I was shocked. Like, I, I couldn't breathe for two seconds, and... I must have made a facial expression about the same because I I made eye contact with a person sitting just like diagonal from me. And I forgot that I was in a train. I forgot where I was because I just, in some ways I should have expected that, but I just didn't expect to have such an emotional reaction to it or to be so moved by it. So that was the first task was to read the 17 testimonials, to get through them. But the interesting part of the task was that read them, but don't summarize the sexual violence. We don't need to refresh the researchers' memories on exactly what happened, but tell us, you know, the general arc of the story. So when it when it was April 1994 and the genocide began, where were these survivors? Where did they go? So being able to distill the arc without talking about the details was a very complicated exercise. And that was the beginning of the project. And that's also partly why it took a really long time, at least for me, to be able to digest that and to want to ask these survivors questions that would focus not on those experiences, but on their responses without talking about those experiences. I, I've had a chance to read some of the, the latest interviews and I think I can say reading them, it, it took me a while, even listening to the audios. Um, it was obviously they were being translated, but even in just listening to the tone of tone of voice that the the person being asked the question, it was very painful to just kind of think that you know they went through this and this is not just something you read about in a book because I feel like things have a tendency to just be okay. There was a genocide in Rwanda in nineteen ninety four, and we know it happened, but the implications of it and the real lived experience is often something that's totally different to how we conceptualize it but the way you put it and your experience reading it on the subway even um, and that emotional reaction that you had um, I, I can only imagine you know working on this project long term as well how it's maybe changed you how have you changed as a person and sort of how has that helped you to understand certain things and are you thinking differently about certain things that came with this project as well I think for me, so I, I want to comment quickly on something that you said, which I think is really important, is that part of the reason this project is so emotional is because it's alive. The survivors are living. They're not this deceased group of you know, victims. They're alive and they can talk about it. They have voices that you can hear in the audio that trigger a whole set of your very lucid imaginations, but for them, their reality. And, and that is such a jarring experience. So for me, when I was listening through the audio and I was actually going through the process of transcribing them, I liked listening to just their, the rhythm of their voice. If it felt like closure in some ways to the, to the horrors that you, that I read. And so to hear their voice made me feel good, but 
if you listen closely enough, you also hear a lot of pain. You hear a lot of coming to terms with what they're saying. You hear acknowledgement, because I think this is the first time the questions have been asked in such a narrative way that they're providing answers that they never thought to themselves could trigger this ultimate meaning of, oh, look how, how important it is that I'm being, that I'm able to do this. And where they have that sense of importance, where they, for instance, I know you asked a totally different question, but this is so important. One of the survivors, you know, they're very, they know when they're saying something is powerful. For instance, one of the survivors, Faustin, who's the only male survivor that was interviewed in the first book and then re-interviewed for this project. Um, he said, well, the Hutus come over to my house, their children eat with my children. And they know that that's important. There's a pause. There's a recognition that every day I come home and I see my kid eating with, you know, my neighbor's kid, my neighbor who also, you know, committed these acts of genocide against me and my family. Well, I'm not going to do anything about this situation, but it's surreal to them that it's happening. And so the experiences of me as a researcher are subordinate, obviously, a hundred times over, a thousand times over to these experiences. But just how I felt in reading these, it was, it was, it's surreal to me. So I can't even imagine what it's like for them. And in terms of how it's affected me, it's, it's given me the sense of perspective that I, I want to do good work. But I have to understand what the qualifications of that are. So there have been you know, different impacts for me. On the one hand, there's been a professional impact in the type of advocate I want to be. I, I've learned through the human rights clinic, through the discussions that we had in seminar and also through this project and doing the work for this project, that advocacy is very much about the stories. It's about how people see themselves. It's about the client who's always at the forefront. There's a tendency, I think, in law school, or not in law school, but in doing the work for law school, there's a tendency to sort of think that always at the forefront, it's always going to be law. It's always the legal argument that comes first. And while that may be actually practically correct, it's not, it's not fair to put that on a different end of the spectrum of the client, of the, the core of the advocacy. I mean, what's the purpose for which we're here? What's the reason we're in this path of justice seeking? And the stories are what inform the legal arguments that you can develop. The stories are what inform the remedies you're seeking, of course. And being able to put the voice first and seeing myself as not you know, a substitute for the voice, but rather a mic for the voice, that was really I think the biggest takeaway for me for this from this project is that as an advocate, my job is not to look at my client and say, you know, I understand your story. Your story is now mine. So I'm going to go and pitch it in the most best, in the most desirable way. I think there's a part of your brain that thinks like that. You have to because you're you're trying to find the most reasonable argument that's going to actually work. And the way to do it is sort of to take that subjectivity and make it your own for a temporary period of time. But then there's a whole other kind of advocacy, a more, a more powerful advocacy that comes about and says, this is not your story or my story. This is their story. This is her story. And this is why it's important. And let's listen to what she has to say. Here's what she said about it. And this is why this argument makes sense. Or this is why this is the remedy we're seeking. Do you not see? Do you not hear? And I think that's that's been my professional takeaway. And Emotionally, I just think that this ties into a question that you you said you were planning to ask me. So I'm sorry to steal your thunder and just to like jump to the answer. But you asked me a question about 
you, you wanted to ask a question about what the meaning of life really is. And this is the conversation that Rubenbo, you and I were having before Tony got here. Emotionally, I think it's really made me become uh, aware of the fact that sometimes, actually all the time, the meaning of life is surviving. And survivorship is not, or surviving, survivorship entails, you know, victimhood in some sense that you're surviving from something, but just surviving as a, as a verb that's intense, like surviving, right? That is a huge deal. It's not, I'm merely surviving. It's not that, oh, I just woke up or I'm just doing my thing. Surviving is a movement. When you are so afflicted with things you cannot control, when you feel powerless, when you feel overwhelmed, whatever the context. I mean, for the survivors in this question, in this, in, in this project, it's obviously genocide. And genocide is not something that you or I could compute as happening to us. Just living every day, the men who killed me, but I still live on and I live on, right? Surviving is the statement that they're making. Thriving, the legacies are in literally being able to create families and, feed, and feeding themselves and rebuilding careers and waking up and going to the shop and buying food and actually cooking the food and enjoying the way the flavors taste. Sometimes, maybe not all the time, but sometimes. That's, that's important. And translated to my own life and to you know, how I see my loved ones, I think the best thing that you can do when you can't, when you have no control is just literally survive. Wake up and get in, get on with your day and enjoy the moments in front of you and only think of those moments. And that's been the perspective that this project has given me. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I, I think that was incredibly insightful and there were so many things that you touched on. I think um, I don't really have a question. I'm just going to say, like, these are the points that really resonated for me. And I think a lot of the ways in which you were talking about oh, that subway moment is really powerful. And I think it, when we listen to these stories, um, we may not, even though we're not that person, we're listening empathetically. Yeah. And I think it touches us so deeply because it puts us in a very vulnerable position and I think even though that can be really scary and of course like it makes sense that you would have that reaction when someone goes through such horrific experiences but I think also that vulnerability can then help us be like um, transform the world that we see in, in our relationships whether professionally or personally and I yeah. love the part they talk about how translating that into advocacy but also like the concept of surviving. And I think that for me is something I'll definitely take away from our conversation just because to be able to see how you can still move throughout the world and still have agency. Yes, which, exactly. It is about agency. That's the whole point. Um, which for sure like doesn't um, ignore like the different structural causes and issues right. that do constrain people's agency but with that being said still being able to then identify mm -hmm. and highlight ways in which people can still survive in their day-to-day yeah. -day lives whether it is like the big thing or even the tiny moments so. and and the decisions that you know that agency grants you i mean you are constrained by all these structural forces that you cannot control but within that framework those decisions matter one of the survivors you know, in their, in their interview said, 
you know, I feel good when I hire the Hutu guy to do my farming for me. And that's an exercise of their agency. It's an exercise of their agency to not address the, the Hutu child and the Tutsi child eating food in the Tutsi home. To not address it in the sense of to not, you know, perpetuate hatred. It's a choice that the survivors make to coexist. And to me, that's the biggest takeaway in this project is that justice seeking, and I, I tried to talk about this a bit in my article as well for Rights Review, justice seeking is not always, although certainly can be, and this is how lawyers are trained to think that it's always in court, but justice is, it's a perspective, it's an approach, it's a way of getting what you think will make you feel satisfied as an outcome. Justice cannot undo the thing that happened. It's merely a responsive structure. And sometimes those responses aren't in courtrooms. Sometimes those responses are just saying, I will feel satisfied if I can end this hate now. I will not pass this to my children. And that's what I heard throughout all of the interviews is that I know that this is happening. I have to live with these annual headaches that happen to these survivors between April, May, and June. They're, they're dealing with these consequences that have a timestamp on them. But they, their power, their agency is in removing that time step and saying, well, at least it stops here. It doesn't continue. The time stops with me. And that is just, it blows my mind. Wow, that's amazing. So just everything you're saying, I was nodding vigorously because I'm like, yes. Um, but just like, you touched on the idea of how lawyers are trained. I mean, I don't want to focus it on the lawyer training, mm -hmm. but... Um, the fact that justice doesn't have to be in a courtroom, right? Um, it seems like it's also kind of maybe informing the way you're seeking to to help to, you know, usher in justice in certain situations. So how do you think going forward in your work um, in law, but also just as a an advocate for justice, right. how do you think this this experience is going to shape the way you go going forward or uh, seeking justice for people that have been through such, such situations? Yeah, so I actually, I've been applying a lot of this perspective um, recently anyway. So I work, uh, I don't work. Work is a bad, work is a word that we use, we generalize it to everything. I mean, I don't get paid for this. I, I get credit for it. I, <laughs> I work, quote unquote, with uh, the Barbara Schleifer Clinic, um, which is, if you're unfamiliar, um, and I don't blame you because for some reason they're not well known, but... They are, um, they're an anti-oppression clinic that runs and is funded specifically to assist women who are victims of domestic violence, who need resources, one of which is legal aid, or not like legal aid as in a lawyer, but assistance with obtaining legal aid, going through the courtroom process, being able to actually go through family court or sometimes the, the, the inter-family and criminal court to be able to seek remedies and to get what they need for, in terms of custody agreements or sometimes even, you know, um, property-related concerns. And so every Friday I go to court and I meet women who have these legal issues and I work with the Barbara Schleifer Clinic workers to get them legal aid. But for me, as an advocate, when I see that process, I see... Well, here's someone who is going through all of these issues that can be dealt with, that, you know, a lawyer will come in and a lawyer will help this, will help her. 
but how can I help her right now? And that's usually through listening, through making them recognize that what's going, what's happening to them is an, is a deeply personal experience. Yes, but it's also temporary. I mean, those impacts in some ways, not to undermine that they're, they're consequential and they will last forever. These are things that people don't forget about when they have to, I mean, women who are victims of domestic violence, they'll always have that in mind. Right. And it's not fair to say it's temporary, but it's to, it's just to sort of illuminate this thought process that you are safe now and you are in control that how you want to write your narrative despite all these forces telling you that you can't do this on your own, you can, you can write your own narrative. And for me, that's what advocacy is now about. And I, I can't claim to say that's anything more because I'm not a practicing lawyer yet. I don't, I'm not the one who gets to represent these women in court just yet. But until the day comes for me, advocacy is always going to be both about what you do in court and how good you are as a lawyer in representing your client and how your client feels when they're with you and how your client feels when the justice, the order has been sought and received and accepted. What happens when you get what you want? What happens when you leave the courtroom? That to me is the whole story of justice that law school won't necessarily tell you about, but it's each lawyer's own process of discovery. And I'm glad I get to do this now as a student and not as a lawyer. Although I think everyone should have this process at least once in their lives. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think everything you're saying, I really hope, um, you know, other law students hear this, but then anyone and everyone in general, especially people who are interested in advocacy mm -hmm. issues. Because um, also you're, you're saying some really great stuff in terms of listening to their stories, taking it on for a brief moment so that you can be able to, you know, properly... I guess, share that story on their behalf and also advocate for them effectively. Um, but then also remembering that it's still not your story. Absolutely. To take full ownership of. It's just, I'm standing in the gap for you, perhaps in a situation where they can't be in that place and you're taking that on, but then still crediting that this is their story and it deserves to still be their story. But I'm also just wondering, I don't know if Tony has a question, but just the emotional labor that goes into the kind of work that you're doing. It's a lot. It's so much. I had nightmares. I remember it was mid-October, perhaps. We So Samara is great. The IHRP is so fantastic. They arranged for um, the, the, the psychologist who, you know, helps students in the law school. She's a fantastic human being. Um, and she volunteered about two hours of her time. And we sat as a group and we talked about the consequences of working on this kind of project where, you know, you're reading such graphic details or you're imagining anyway, because that's just the way the way the human experience works. Right. You tell me something's happened to you and my instinct is to just start imagining it is happening to me so I can understand how to connect with you. It's a it's a kind of a very awful way of operating, but it's effective in that it gets the job done. You connect. Right. So that connection for me was originally quite uh hard. It was a little trauma inducing. I wouldn't say I'm traumatized, but it felt like a very um, scary thing because I, I would have nightmares and I would wake up thinking about the project and thinking about sexual violence and feeling violated. Um, and I think that that comes from the, the fact that I have done maybe not as much work as, you know, another woman, women's rights advocate, if I can even call myself that as a student right now. But, you know, I've done enough work with research and sociology and actually working with clients through the, through the clinic that I just discussed 
but also in undergrad, the work that I'd done, you know, exploring sexual violence on campus, right? Looking at from so many different quantitative and qualitative aspects and then actually having a project that combines in some cases, in some ways, both of those things. Reading those stories, it's just very vivid for me. So I remember literally having two nights at least where I woke up and I was just, I was sweating and I just, I felt very, very violated. And I think it's a lot of emotional labor. And that's just one example of it. Um, it's emotional labor to be able to put your own emotions aside and deal with the, the person in front of you. Um, there have been a couple moments, at least when I'm working with the clients, for instance, for Barbara Schleifer Clinic, uh, where I've had, you know, my own life events come in the come in the way that, that have been on my mind that have made me, you know, emotionally very upset or maybe perhaps turned off when I go into these meetings. But then when I'm speaking to them, it's a lot of emotional labor just to shut all of that off and then to engage with them. But you're engaging with them not for something that's necessarily happy. You're engaging with them for something that's more negative. And it's your labor, it's my labor to turn that negative experience into something less negative, if I can. So you're expending that labor in so many different levels. You're, you're muting yourself out, you're engaging with the other person, and then you're actually transforming the experience for both you and the other person. And that can be deeply upsetting. It's very exhausting. And then it leaves an impact on you. You start thinking about, you start thinking about them. There have been so many times I'll leave the clinic and I'll think of the client and, and then I'll ask my supervisor the following week, hey, did you ever hear about what happened there? The sense of anxiety that comes and not hearing an update, that's all me, even though it's very much the client. So I, I, I don't have a very beautiful sentence to describe the emotional labor, but it's a lot. It's a lot. But that isn't, that, that, that is never an excuse to not do it. Um, I think that is... Uh, a perspective to keep in mind when you are doing it to know exactly how much you can afford to expend. But that is never, just because emotional labor is personally very intense does not mean that nobody and everybody should just be excused from doing that. I think, and to be in fairness of most people, I think we spend emotional labor every day with our friends and our families. I think that's where most of it is used up anyway. It just changes the experience to know that you're dealing with people who are living realities that you just don't understand but you want to be there to help yeah that was actually very beautifully put that was i don't think i could have ever summed up emotional labor in such succinct and very um like you hit the nail on the head i think with that yeah you're taking on their story muting your own i think that resonates a lot with me as well the fact that you need to shut your emotions down or at least you know mute them for the time being so you can fully engage with this person and try to understand where they're coming from but it's still like you can't ever really really shut off what you've gone through that might be triggered by an interaction you're having with someone because that's like you said how the human mind works if you've been through a similar experience i don't think you can help but to think i've gone through this situation which reminds me of what they're talking about but at the same time, you need to also put yourself fully into this person as well and then go home with your own issues, but now their issues on top. But just not thinking about their issues because they're not your issues. Yeah. And, and you know, if I can add something to that, I think it's even a little bit more complicated when you're trying to be a lawyer or an advocate. It's because 
I think this is also partly why law school really cares about, you know, you just getting down the legal reasoning and not caring about the emotions. It's because emotions don't win in court. Emotions, they work to a certain rhetorical effect. They serve a rhetorical purpose, but that rhetoric is not going to make a losing argument a winning argument. And you can only think of a winning argument if you've got the right head in your, if you've got the right brain in your head, right? And if you've got one that's working and not crying and not, you know, upset, not riveted. So it's really, it's important, I think, for advocates to then take the fourth step after making, after transforming that experience, you have to then say, well, I'm just going to forget all about it now. And here are what the legal, here are the facts that I noticed that are legally relevant to these points that I can sort of make in order to get what you want and deserve and need. And I think being able to do that effectively does involve keeping things at an arm's length which explains so much about the atmosphere at law school. Emotions don't get you anywhere. They want you to think with your head. And that is a grueling experience when you're someone who's like me, where I think first with my heart and then I move to my head. But in some ways I, 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 I get it. And I think it is effective, but it makes the emotional labor aspect a little bit more intense when you know that the advocacy part is just coming and the advocacy part is the hardest part. Yeah. I was going to say, I think, yeah, emotional labor makes a lot of sense. And I think even in the way you were talking about the process of listening, it's not a very passive thing. It requires a lot. It's very active. And also to know how powerful it is when someone is willing to listen to somebody's story, particularly stories that have faced a lot of backlash or stories that have been erased or stories that need to be heard. And I think in a lot of ways, recognizing, I love that part that you talk about thinking with your heart first and your head after. And I think, because I, I also think it is really valuable to have those, like letting things move us deeply. And, mm-hmm. and I think at the same time, um, being an advocate is not easy. It's also kind of being this pillar of strength. Yes. And also uh, also just knowing kind of what, uh, for instance, like options that a survivor has and kind of being kind of that pillar of strength to be able to remind them kind of like these are and kind of going back to kind of the ways you highlight agency yeah. and things like that. And with that, being said, I'm wondering because kind of like there is kind of that emotional labor and emotional impact and a lot of things that we talk about, and correct me if I'm wrong, like vicarious trauma seems like a huge um, result. I don't want to say consequence, but like it's a result of kind of... It can be, yeah. I'm wondering what kind of helps you to keep going, to kind of keep doing this work. So I'll admit it's not perfect. Um, sometimes it's really hard because when you have to, when you, when you think about all these things that you read and you, you hear the voices in your head of the survivors and the way they speak, the rhythm of their voice, it it somehow just echoes and it it leaves an imprint or it leaves an impact anyway, you know, coupled with that, when you have your own life stresses and your own senses, your own sense of insecurities and your inadequacies, and the ways in which you just can't exercise control in your life in general, I think some days it's really hard to move. But that being said, I think for me, it's um, it's knowing that I can do good work. It's knowing that 
I'm in a position of a lot of privilege and being trained to be able to serve communities that need it and want it. Not just need it as in we've identified it, but they are asking for justice. And I think I feel every day that I get up and I come to school and I learn more, I feel more prepared. I feel much smaller than I did the day before in comparison to this bigger world out there that I have to, you know, face every day. I'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm real, I'm, I'm recognizing how tiny I am as an entity relative to literally everybody else and every other structure and, you know, in existence. But that being said, I feel a little bit more prepared. This tiny person's feeling a little bit more prepared a little every day. And that's a good feeling. It's a, it's a feeling that justifies all of the labor. It justifies all of the breakdowns. It justifies all of the victories too, which you might not think need justifications, but they do too. And it justifies going to bed at night, waking up in the morning after four hours of sleep and saying, hey, I'm going to do it all over again. I mean, some days are not, some days are better than others, but you know, again, this, and this goes back to the surviving aspect. I think surviving gives you a lot of perspective. Yeah. Justifies going, but wow, yeah. <laughs> you're saying some really quote worthy <laughs> You know, you're like, wow, this would look really good in a diary. <laughs> Can someone put this on a mug? <laughs> no, because I think, um, I, I, I don't know if I'm speaking for both of us here. Um, I mean, all of us are to some degree involved in causes or at least care about causes right. that are really deeply emotional and um, require a lot of us having to decide honestly do you really want to wake up every day and keep fighting this fight that sometimes does have you know no successes sometimes it seems like you've taken 10 steps back when something happens and you have to wonder so am I doing something worthwhile I'm so tired I'm exhausted I have to keep fighting and is it worth it but I think like you said the preparation through our education but even through just the privilege of being where we are, being alive, being in the socioeconomic statuses that we're in, or whatever it could be, I think that in itself, you know, is enough to say, right, let's get up and let's continue to do this because this is what we need to do for for this to work. And it's it would be unfair to keep all this privilege to ourselves and like locked away, not doing anything for anyone else. Who right. It energizes that. you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So no, that's really that's really great. And I think you mentioned something. I mean, you've been mentioning, you know, kind of um, taking on these stories and listening to them and like the emotional labor involved and everything. But is there, was there ever a time during this project that, you know, you heard or you listened or you read to something that made you smile or laugh or hopeful even? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it made me laugh, but it made me smile after I, it dawned on me what it meant. Um, one of the survivors... So it's actually Faustin, the male survivor. He uh, he was sexually assaulted by a female perpetrator. And in the interviews, one of the researchers asked him just this past November, you know, we couldn't find her. I mean, when when you were going th- when you were seeking justice and you, you know, probably wanted to prosecute her for the Guchacha courts. There was no trace of her. We don't know where she went. I mean, how does that make you feel? And his response was, well, I felt bad that I couldn't find her because I couldn't thank her. And 
I rewinded that part just to make sure I was actually listening to the right answer to the right to the same question. I was like, what? What did he say? And his logic, I mean, you can't deny it. One, because it's his logic. And second, also, I never thought about it, but it made sense. He wanted to thank her because even though she did that to him, he actually stayed in her home. She fed him. She sheltered him. He wasn't out being brutalized. I mean, it was a different kind of brutalization happening in the home, but at least he survived. And so his regret is that he couldn't find her just to thank her. I mean, this isn't coming from a place of, you know, him saying, well, what happened to me was not worth, you know, anything or like whatever. It just happened. He wasn't being dismissive of his own, of his own you know, past and his own experiences, but he was in spite of those things saying, you know, expressing gratitude. And that blew my mind. It just blew my mind. And I was telling you guys this and your eyebrows raised at the same time and your head tilted in the same direction. And could you imagine after reading these graphic stories and knowing what happened, reading all the stuff that, you know, these survivors have had to deal with. And it's not the focus of the project is sexual violence, but survivors have lost their family members. Survivors have to deal, have seen what you and I can't even imagine. And they have to live with that every single day, right? And the fact that he's thanking her for surviving the genocide reminds me of how, you know, surviving is actually more important than you think, that, you know, people assign value in surviving. And this, the second thing that it made me realize was that, well, there are many things to be grateful for that it's not just a silver lining that it's sometimes the whole cloud. And, you know, that's, that's kind of, that was really powerful for me. I had to sit with that for a while. Cause I, I, I remember I turned, I, I turned off my laptop or I shut it down anyway. And I was like, okay, I got to think about this. Yeah. <laughs> this is a different moment. Yeah. My eyebrows definitely raised. I, and so did mine. <laughs> <laughs> it was synchronized. I saw it. <laughs> and then, but the way that you like explained it, I was like, oh, wow. Like, if I could describe it, it's like how I was feeling as I was like listening to you describe that moment. It's kind of like an unexpected softness. Yeah. You know? And I was like, wow. I wrote an email to Samer and I said, hello, did you hear this? Did you, did you, did you catch this part in the interview? Can you believe this? And I didn't get a response to that. <laughs> I don't, I don't think anyway. Uh, but I brought it up in the next meeting with him and he's like, yeah, there 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 was this recognition. But it's the first part of that thing, which I said was that, you know, people are grateful for surviving the, the genocide. That also was surprising. Obviously, we all have this instinct to survive, right? That's just human. But I had this very wrong mentality that, you know, having seen what they, they saw, why would anyone want to live after that? Why are you grateful to be alive? And that's a, that's a horribly awful thing to say, I know, but sometimes things are just so painful that you would rather just not have them be your reality for as long as you're going to live and you'd have no control over how long you're going to live. But the fact that the first thing that you want to do is thank her because he survived. And then he explained that, you know, he, that the brutalization in the home was probably preferable to the brutalization outside of the house with the perpetrator. 
that was almost secondary to my initial shock of the fact that, you know, he's grateful. And that is a step towards empowerment, or that is being empowered, where you can actually say that these, these horrible things happened, but they're a thing of the past, and I am now here, and I'm grateful to be here. And that one, that one answer to that question, Faustin has basically, in my mind anyways, summarized the narrative of resilience that the survivors have. They're grateful to be alive. And to me, that was really powerful. I, I also agree. <laughs> but also, I wanted to really quickly touch on, there's like a very interesting temporal aspect to the project and just reflecting on the things that you've talked about, because it's been like 25 years. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see kind of the shift in kind of the ways in which people share their stories and also the ways in which the way in which people talk about um, surviving and maybe sometimes you don't survive mm -hmm. uh, metaphorically because it's right. like an experience but also finding ways where you, you can survive and think about not just like um, the possibility that a future can happen but also like to imagine what kind of future now compared to when it like just happened where it's mm -hmm. really hard to like see envision what kind of future there is when that isn't really a possibility so i think for me like just reflecting on that temporal piece has been like a really interesting um aspect of our conversation well in some sense the temporal piece is the point of the project we work we're working so hard to get this book out in time for april the 25th anniversary um, we're working on this exhibition in her house for April. This testimonial is 10, this sequel story is 10 years after the first one. I think time is that necessary ingredient when, when we discuss resilience. I think that's, that's the poetry in resilience is that as time passes, you just become stronger by virtue of you consciously wanting to become stronger or you gaining those tools to do that. And that it's not a consequence of time, but it certainly is affected very deeply by the movement of time. It has been very enlightening. I'm really glad that you shared your experience and just um, you know your involvement in the project but also I don't know if you hear this enough but thank you for the work you do and just like what you're going to continue doing because I can imagine it's not easy or it's not even something that you maybe thought you would be doing but you know you're continuing and persevering with it and that's just thank you for what you do but also for encouraging me at least because I think it gives me a greater resolve to continue fighting for the things that I fight for and um, that it's necessary, you know, to, keep, to keep pushing and um, just the lives of the people you could change. I'm not in the law per se, but um, I think anyone who does anything and fights for something, um, there's always some sort of honor in that. And thank you. Well, but before we thanks. finish, I'm, you know, there could be, is there anything else that we haven't asked you that you would like to discuss? No, I think this has been my first opportunity to actually reflect on my journey when it comes to women's rights and human rights advocacy. So thank you for listening to me. I'm not important enough to be listened to. No, I, I don't mean this in a self-deprecating way. I mean that there are such fabulous lawyers out there who are actually 
licensed and get to do very cool things and they inspire me. And, you know, the fact that you want to listen to me do the things that I do for credit in school and try to actually get involved with, that's very kind of you. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to reflect in a way that I actually haven't been able to in the past, but I'm glad I'm doing this now. So thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Wow. No, I'm, you're important. First of all, <laughs> you are important. Yeah. Um, We're all important. And your story is amazing and I hope you can do it justice. Thank you to Mahak and India for their generosity and openness in sharing their stories with us. The series of interviews was recorded in collaboration with the And I Live on Talking Walls exhibit, which is created in partnership with the Heart House Social Justice Committee, the Multi-Faith Center, Human Rights Watch, and the International Human Rights Program at the Faculty of Law. You can find out more about the exhibit and project by going to hearthouse.ca. Heart House Stories is a program of Heart House, the Center for Art, Culture, Wellness, and Dialogue at UFT. Our podcast intro and outro was composed by Dan Driscoll. Special thanks go to our senior production team and a dedicated team of student producers. Heart House is a place where stories happen. What's yours? You can reach us with ideas and feedback at stories at hearthouse.ca.
God on God, sitting at my feet was ashes and sorrows encompassed me round. Are you tired, me darling? When work's all done and fall, I'll still think on you, darling. I remember it all. I remember it all. 
Spend 